Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Responsible Adult, which is also the final episode of the series, possibly ever, but I've got ideas for a second series in the works, so watch the space. I've bookended this series with the two most important adults in my life, and as such, this episode I talk to my lovely dad. Now, growing up for me has involved a lot of realising that I don't really know my dad at all, Um, not in a sinister way, just in the sense that he lived this crazy and unexpected life that he just never thought to tell me about. We talk here about his relatively complicated home life, his adventures jumping out of planes and later flying them, and his avoidance of responsibility until little me came along. I really hope you enjoy it, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this series as much as I've enjoyed making it. So without further ado, here's my dad's journey into responsible adulthood. Good to go. Hey dad. Hello Tids. How are you? Very well, thank you. What have you been up to today? Um, just been lying around the house with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but you're supposed to make something up. That's oh, fun no. and cool. No, not really. Nothing. Fair enough. Up. Thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. How have you been feeling about it? Um, I'm looking forward to it really actually. I thought you weren't, weren't going to do it with me because you kept putting it off. I thought maybe you were just <laughs> like, like Brexit. You were no, I'm just like, um, too late. disorganised. So I'll start the way I start with everyone, which is asking you to go back to the first time that you ever felt any association with adulthood, be that, you know, um, a label that was put on you before you wanted it or an expectation that you felt you needed to rise to, anything like that. Cool. Well, I mean, for me, that's cutting right right to the chase, really, and coming forward a long way. Because, I, I mean, I, you know, you probably haven't realised this, but your, your mum definitely has a, a lot of my behaviour in life has been about being really, really lazy and avoiding responsibility, really. And so, to be honest, the, the first time I really, really felt responsibility was when you when you came along, really. That was absolutely life-changed, you know, in a wonderful way, but, but just beyond kind of all sort of, you know, it was, it was completely different from, from mm. anything that, that I'd felt before. And, and I don't think, I'm not sure I can remember feeling any sort of adult responsibility before that really but that that was really sudden and, and really strong kind sure of. but so using what I know about you you had quite a selection of difficulties in your childhood and you have two sisters and from what I can understand you might have done quite a lot of looking after them I think yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't really work like that, to be honest. And I suppose maybe, you know, because um, because of the way things were when we were younger, I never really had any sort of parental influence or input into my life at all, really, ever. Um, I, I, you know, my mum was there, but she was kind of a bit wayward at times. I didn't really know my dad till I was 16. So I lived with my grandparents. And they were lovely, old, gentle old people. And I sort of, mm. uh, it, it, that was a great time. I, I still see that as being a good time in my life. But, it, you know, from the age of about 12 or 13, I was just away. I didn't come home sometimes at weekends and I was staying with friends and stuff like that. So um, I think maybe the responsibility that I had to, to my sisters and they had to me was, was kind of already then a bit of a bond, I suppose, really, because we had a Slightly strange upbringing, so we, we kind of were looking after each other, I guess, okay. really. So it was quite mutual. Yeah, and I think it was probably, to be to be fair, it was probably more, certainly Fiona, because obviously Pandora's younger than me, but certainly Fiona was, was probably more her looking after me, I guess, in a way. Okay. I'm not sure if she realised it at the time. So maybe responsibility is different to 
adulthood in your case. Yeah. Or, you know, grown-up situations. Because, you know, whether you saw it like that or not, you were you were pushed into some quite heavy grown-up situations. Yeah. And therefore, you know, you would expect that that would kind of make you internally feel a certain way. But yeah, I maybe don't know. just that internal feeling of responsibility for someone or something didn't come until much later. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really know. It's really difficult to say, isn't it, how things have affected you. I don't know how, how much our our childhood has made me, contributed to making me the sort of lazy, kind of feckless, you know, um, naturally irresponsible sort of person that, that I have been most of my life, really. Whether, whether you know, and I've always been really kind of like reluctant about taking on extra responsibility that I didn't need to. And I've just been lucky um, to end up doing stuff that I, I really like. So it's kind of hasn't been like a job, you know. Mm. But, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't. Th- there's no doubt about it in my mind. That was when, when you, when you arrived. That was it. That was the beginning of a, you know, a whole new period mm. of, of responsibility, which I, which I loved. But I knew that I had to, you know, get my head down and, and make that work. Really. So that was, that was completely different. A mm. Complete change for me without any shadow of a doubt. Okay. So let's try and fill in some gaps for people that don't know you as well as I do. Um, you grew up in Seaford, didn't you? Most I of did. Your life. Yeah. Um, you know, well, in a nutshell, my my um, my mum was married and divorced with um, with two kids when she was twenty one, and then uh, she um, uh, she remarried not not long after that to a chap um, who who was Dodds's father mm-hmm. um and they had a bit of a kind of um a uh, colorful sort of marriage really i think that she gra- gradually became a sort of chronic alcoholic and he drank a lot and they, they did a lot of um of uh, valium and librium and stuff like that which okay. like, those those kind of drugs were like pretty liberally dispensed in in those days and i think the whole thing was a pretty toxic um toxic mix really and um I, I was lucky in in the sense that I was um I was sent to boarding school when I was six, which is not quite as bad as it it sounds really. So I was <laughs> I was out of it really, and um, Fiona certainly um, took more of the brunt of it. And and you know Dodds was young, obviously, and then he committed suicide when I was ten. Um, so that you know very sadly left Dodds without a dad, and she would have been probably six then. You know, so that was all quite quite tragic in in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and then after I left. Uh, boarding school at 11 I just carried on living with my grandparents really and, mm-hmm. th- and that was it and so sometimes Fief, well Fief was there all the time I think really um, because by that time we, we'd all kind of like moved to Seaford and um, uh, yeah it, it was a good place to be really because all my, my grandparents were there but all my extended aunts and uncles had all decided to retire there so my memories actually of that period of my of my life is just of sort of like sunshine and you know beaches and Mm. and good times really you know um so you know i think i was sort of well taken care of but so that was that was really and then the next stage from 11 onwards i went to school um in lewis um i think there was a secondary modern uh around the corner uh in in seaford but i didn't go there i think i must have done some exam or something when i was at, at private school anyway i went to lewis which is comprehensive and then got the train every day and that was beginning of another sort of period of my of my life really which mm-hmm. was also good good fun was it exciting getting the train every day? <laughs> it was great, actually. Yeah, and I, I don't, you know, I, I, that I think about it sometimes. Yeah, no, it was, I kind of, yeah, that, that was quite a weird part of, of, of school life, really. And coming back on the train as well, of course, you know. Were you the only one so, doing that? Uh, no, there was a few of us. And um, some of them got off at New Haven. 
but there was a lot of kids from Seaford who were going to, to Lewis Priory and so there was a little kind of social mm. life thing going on sure you know so what was school like for you in terms of going from well I guess what was boarding school like as well and what was that transition like for you yeah it was it was interesting really because I because in Seaford I mean like at the time I, there was a fashion for being um like the sort of go-to fashion in Seaford really it was it was sort of being a, what they called suede heads now it was like wearing <laughs> wearing um like Crombies and um, um Doc Martin uh, shoes and, and Ben Sherman shirts and all the rest of it so that was kind of my 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 dress fallback really so when I went to Lewis Priory I kind of fell in with it with unfortunately with that well it wasn't really any very bad or sinister but I fell in with that with that kind of little social set mm-hmm. really and um and then I realized quite quickly that I actually I was I was really more of a hippie and, and then sort of changed my um really changed my my dress code pretty quickly really and then was it that simple that you just kind of was yeah because the demarcation was very you know there weren't like we were talking about this the other day weren't we saying about you know the problems in in schools nowadays with kids carrying knives and everything i don't remember that that there being that you know that much it was all a bit kind of tongue-in-cheek really all the demarcation so there was nothing really kind of evil or sinister about the kids well then there were kids who they were called rosler kids so it was a raising of the school leaving age so the, the school leaving age actually believe it or not had been raised to 16 so so they were um they were kids who who had to do another year at at school who previously wouldn't who previously wouldn't have been there yeah and so you know it's kind of that they were a little group and but it was all it was all quite benign really yeah I, i i just remember it being being good fun and 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 you know i met obviously met simon then uh, and his brothers and uh, their his mum and dad kind of semi-adopted me I think really and they had a big house in Lewis and so I used to stay there at the weekends and I'd come back I didn't cause my grandparents any problems obviously mm. I always let them know where I was and everything but they you know they, basically yeah, I was a pretty good kid I think really and and yeah and just sort of had, I just remember having lots of parties and good fun at school really it was all quite parties at your grandparents house no 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 <laughs> no it, sort of parties at other people's houses sure. really yeah and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I, get, I I met um when I was about fourteen or fifteen. I met a girl called Kate. Funny enough, who 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 was an artist as well, <laughs> which is a strange coincidence, really. And she was like my sort of you know first love, I suppose. Um, well, she definitely was really. And and we were together for quite a long time until after we left school. Yeah, and I can remember going back on on the train. There was this chap called Matt Bowden who was a really good friend of mine, and we both really, really fancied Kate. And um, <laughs> we used to go back on the train and talk about her and say, "Oh, I saw her in the corridor, you know, at lunchtime." Aww. And um, and he actually got off with her first, which was a bit of a disappointment. Aww. But then eventually I did, and yeah, and that was a quite a long relationship, really. Like you know, first <laughs> solid foundation, first little clearly. love affair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then, so yeah, school finished. Um, I, I, I was really lazy, as I say. And so I got a couple of A-levels, I think. It, it, you know, well, I know I did, actually. And I think I got five uh, O-levels. So, so it was in French and English, you know. And that was really just because I t- t- turned up, really. You've told me before um, about a um, <coughs> career meeting that you had where you maybe mentioned wanting to be a pilot. Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, it, that's, I mean, you forget, don't you, how long... This was a long time ago, you know. This was in the sort of mid-70s. And uh, I remember going to um, the careers uh, officer. He was a nice enough guy, but I said to him, I think I fancy being a pilot. And he went, oh, no, there's no way you're ever <laughs> going to do that. He said, you might be able to be an air load master in the RAF or something like that. And so mm. that was kind of, well, I was a bit like, and by that time I'd met my, my real dad as well. 
Okay. Um, I, I just when I was sixteen, I decided to go up to Scotland. I probably should have included that in the story, really. And, <laughs> it's okay. um, no, and he was have. a pilot, so it kind of had got me. Although we didn't get on very well, um, he had kind of sparked an interest in flying, really, because mm. he, he flew a little light aircraft around the Highlands of Scotland, and so that had kind of got that going in my head, sure. really. So, so yeah, and then I, and then sure, you know, sure enough, I didn't become a pilot for quite a long, long time after that, really. On what grounds um, did he say that you wouldn't be able to do it? Well, because I think you know, just in those days they were quite brutal about things like that and obviously you could see the sort of subject see how abysmally bad I'd done in my O levels and um, you know because I really got five and they were like all, all C's or whatever the lowest grade was to actually mm. get the exam you know and uh, and uh, and they were in things like um, British constitution um, religious education you know French English <laughs> um, so all the easiest possible subjects you could do um, and uh, so I think he saw, you know, he obviously read that and thought, well, this guy's never going to be a pilot because pilots do physics and sciences and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was fair enough. His kind of verdict on my future was, was fair enough, really. Mm. But um, but just, you know, I'm coming from the perspective of a time when it's really properly hard to get jobs. And I couldn't become a pilot either with my, you know, yeah. however many A-levels <coughs> and GCSEs. But, you know, I'm just, I'm surprised that, because you obviously did become a pilot. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, so you know, I'm just I'm just curious why they felt the need to be that. Well, I brutal. just think I think you know that was a long time ago, really, and it was you know so you've I don't know if you think well that was like twenty years before that it was the mid fifties you know and sort of thirty years before that it was like the end of the Second World War so yeah. you know it was it was still a, a long yeah. time ago really and I think. Yeah, he probably he probably just saw me for what I was, which was kind of a bit of a lazy sort of. You know, I wasn't in trouble or anything like that, but I, but I, you know, I obviously it's wasn't personal. applying myself particularly yeah. assiduously. Really, it's, it's just it's interesting to it's interesting to think about it as like the the attitude that schools have seemingly has never changed, and it's kind of like with people earning you know five GCSEs, the attitude of school is always going to be you're not doing enough. You're not yeah, going to yeah. amount to enough unless you get more, better grades, you know, work harder. And that's still the attitude that my generation has been given. Yeah, yeah. Despite, you know, achieving, you know, well, double look, I, that, I think, if not more. You know, I think the thing is, what we've talked about this before, and I think, you know, they, 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 I've, I've, re I've seen things saying that, that 1976 was probably the best time to be alive. I think it was a good time to leave school. You know, if you left school and you mm. went on the dole, that, that you, there's almost no question you would get the dole. Um, if you went to university, then you got a grant. Of course, there weren't as many people going to university. But the, I think the main thing was that there was undoubtedly a way through life which didn't involve academia really and that was quite possible yeah. you know and it and, and that's you know it's what happened to me really well it wasn't a stellar kind of path or anything but but there was no it was no problem I got a job and I looked after myself and then mm. you know you could meet somebody or work for somebody that liked you and they would help you out and then you would advance that way or you know where you were going to get an apprenticeship or something that that was a really really possible um route to take um, so it wasn't so intimidating. The whole thing wasn't so intimidating. You could be a bit more dreamy, I think. I don't know if I really took that into the equation at the time, but you mm. definitely could. You know, you could just ignore all that academic stuff and just go a completely different route. And the chances were that it would be all right, really. And I think it's more difficult now. I, I feel really sorry for kids leaving school now. And I think I'm not sure how much of this pressure is artificial, but, you know, you could walk into jobs then where that you probably would need a degree to get now, you know. And, yeah. um, so it was easier. Yeah, it was sure. easier, really. We um we glazed over it a little there, but I'm interested to know what going to see your dad was like for the first time. 
That was that was um, the first time I went was with Kate, the girl, my, my my girlfriend then, and mm-hmm. um, it was quite weird. And he was, um, you know, he was a well, you've met him, but you probably don't remember him very very well. He it was, well um, enough. Yeah, I mean, he was that was quite an interesting experience, quite a big experience in my life, I suppose, really, because yeah. I, you know, he kind of looked like me, and 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 um, and he was a pilot, and he had all that sort of kudos, and but he was a difficult man, really was, you know, really mm-hmm. difficult guy to get along with, and um, um, loved to argue, quite domineering and overbearing. And, and, and of course, that that kind of played itself out in in what happened to well, well, his um, you know, as you know, he had he had to, when he remarried after he'd split up with my mum, he had two sons and a daughter, and one of his sons committed suicide. You know, I, I I wouldn't want to say too much because I don't really know. You know, I don't want to sort of. I'm not sure how. It's not really secret or anything, but I I, I, I think maybe that was to do with with my dad and how he was. I mean, that, mm. when when Gavin died, it was only early forties. Uh, he hadn't spoken to my dad for quite a few years, twenty five years or something. You know. Wow. And uh, his his my dad's second wife Grace was a lovely lovely woman really really nice woman I, I really regret not having gone up to see her when she died a, a year ago but she but you know I often wonder whether she held it against my dad really anyhow that's probably going a bit too deep into it but I, I did I went to see him um, quite a few times after that maybe sort of seven or eight times I suppose through my as I got as I you know in the, yeah. in, the, in the next five or six years and never really never really got on particularly well with him and towards the end we always end up having an argument about something or other yeah. you know. What was the dynamic like? Did you feel um, like like a father and son or was it like going to see... No, he was odd. He was odd and I remember him saying to me once that he never really he never really had had paternalistic impl- uh, feelings, you know. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> which I, at 16 I didn't really think much about but of course when I had my own kids I started to think, well, that's a bit weird really, you know. So I think he was a bit, a bit, um, a bit messed up really by his own parents. Um, mm. his, 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 his mother, uh, my auntie Tina was a very, really domineering woman. And, uh, his dad was quiet. Uncle Bill was quite quiet and docile. And I think, I think that maybe he'd seen the, the interaction between them and, and kind of decided in his own head that he was never going to be in a relationship that, you know, that would allow him to be he switched it right. dominated. So he switched it right around the other way and went way over the top. So, wow. yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of love lost there really to be honest and 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 I, I I've qu- fairly quickly moved into a state of mind where I actually felt quite glad that he hadn't had the chance to bring me up really I actually felt okay. quite relieved that that I'd had the freedom to bring mm. myself up really um or, or be brought up at least by a, a committee of, of mm. um, people that are really were looking out for me really you did just than... say bring yourself up dad well yeah <laughs> but I mean it's probably being a bit dramatic really I mean I did stuff was there you know we had a place to live and um my remember my mum wasn't always there with my grandparents in this in the same house she's she was off getting married again and again and you know <laughs> into various dreadful relationships and and you know drinking herself to, to death really but she I mean she would you know so, so it was quite a uh, in, with my grandparents. It was actually quite a stable kind of mm. environment, really. And I and I think I just seem to remember the times that she did did come back. It was always a bit of a pain in the ass, really, because you know things started to hot up a bit. And so, uh, so yeah, you know, I was looked after, really. I had yeah. a lot of these aunts and uncles, my auntie Sutu, and all those people. There was a lot of people that were kind of looking after me, really. Mm. What was the the babysitting system that you had with the teddies <laughs> well that's funny because that was my auntie Iris who you won't remember and she was like there was uh, I think Cassie had so my grandmother had five sisters I think and one brother anyway auntie Iris she moved down to Seaford so she ended up living across the road from us we had this uh, bungalow on the corner by the by the seafront in a park road it was called and they built these sort of townhouses opposite 
and you could you could on their balcony you could see into the into the front back front room of, of our house across the road so we we used to um my grandparents used to be this, this is when i was quite small obviously i mean i was yeah. probably, we're talking about being four or five here and um my grandparents um, used to go off and they'd go off and spend the evening over the road. But if there was any problems, we used to have to put a teddy bear in the window and that was a signal that the things had gone wrong. So they had to come back. And, uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, yeah, it was the, the olden, days, olden days equivalent of a baby, baby monitor. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess we can't really jump to my birth as the first instance of you feeling like an adult. I know that that's what you say it was. I could, when I left school, the first job I did was I went and sold these dictionaries in in, um, in Tehran. For, 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 uh, there was a guy in Seaford who had a company that they used to buy stockpile books and they would send groups of people over to, around the world and they would sell these books. It was a bit of a scam, really. And my mum knew him anyway, so I, I, he said, he said, well, you can do, go and do it if you like. So he basically paid for my ticket to go to Iran. So I arrived, just after having left school, I arrived in, in Tehran with no money at all. And and I thought they'd moved hotel. That these people that I was supposed to be working with when I first got there, which was, but I mean, the thought of doing that now just makes my toes curl. Really, I think I, I don't know what I was thinking of. <laughs> was anyway. it the, the the other country aspect of it, or just uh, it was a thing to do? Well, it was just you know, I mean, Tehran was quite was probably I haven't been back there since, but I think it probably was more kind of westernised then than it than it is now even because the Shah was still in power. So there was a lot of of, uh, of Western influence. There was mm -hmm. a lot of Americans there and stuff. And a lot of the Iranians wanted to learn English. So that's why there was a market for sort of, you know, Webster's dictionaries. And, okay. And um, so that's what we did. And I did that. We did, spent about three months in Tehran and about a month in Isfahan. And then things got a little bit difficult because the, the year before, the people that had been doing it had been selling these books and maybe not paying the deposits in or something anyway. They'd gone missing. So there was every now and again, you'd knock on somebody's door and they'd go mad and call the police and all the rest of it so we got we got out and then I went to um I went to went back home then I went to, to Athens for a while uh, and so I think I was probably away altogether for maybe five or six months and then when I came back I, I sort of assumed like you do when you're young that, that Kate would would, would be wait, not waiting for me but, but that she would still be there and she was well, we did actually get back together again mm -hmm. and then we ended up living in a flat in London Road in Brighton and I was working, bizarrely enough, in a Calagas shop, really, selling, you know, Calagas heaters. I mean, I... I Which you know, Kate are we talking about We're now? talking about the first Kate. The first Kate. Yeah, we've got a way to go before we get to your mum. And uh, and so she was going to Brighton Art College doing a foundation, and she was going to go to art college somewhere else after that. That is so weird. I know, it's really, <laughs> really bizarre. I didn't know bizarre. about this other Kate. No, it's really bizarre. And I, I, I didn't realise at the time, as I realise now, that things were about to change, really. I think I was probably, you know... Heading for heading for big big changes without realizing, and sure enough, of course, we she she went to art college and we split up, you know, and so that mm. was that was a really really dark little period for me for a year or so, two year or two, I guess, and um, by that time I was working as a salesman selling lithographic printing plates and, and graphic arts equipment, and I mm -hmm. had a car and a few suits and everything. And a fair bit of money and I just thought you know that life's good so I had some really good friends as well you know like my old mate Keith and we all used to kind of look after each other at the weekend and he just come back from uh was about to come back from university in Leeds so they kind of like got me through that really uh, but no that I think I remember being in that flat on my own and that was a really you know that was a time when I actually kind of I felt oh that, that's quite hard really you know mm. that was quite a tough a tough time um so not so much adult responsibility but I, I felt a lot older 
like you know um, suddenly than I than I had done. Sure. If, you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So when you were doing these jobs. Did you at any point think that they needed to like lead to something? No, not at or all. Were that, they just no, no, not at all. Really, making money. I don't know. That's a weird. I mean, it, and it is a weird thing to think. What was I thinking of? You know, and I had thought about going to to university. I I, I tried was going to go to Leeds, and uh, but I could only get into the Polytechnic because because Keith was in Leeds anyway. So I thought, well, that would be good. I'll spend a couple of years up there. We'll cross over, and um, you know, the chrono- chronology of this might be not completely accurate but it's about right I think and and I and Leeds Poly was terrible well, it was like it was a new polytechnic then it really was <laughs> it really was a horrible building and I just went up and saw it and I thought oh, I'm not going to do that so I just got a job you know in the car gas shop and it was opposite it was literally opposite the flat where we lived in London Road um, you know and it was good money was good and then for a while Kate went down to, to a place in Wiltshire to go to art college and I used to go down every weekend and see her but it was all going to it was going to come to an end you, mm. know, you know it was just natural really we were at that How age how old were you at that time? Uh, I think probably 19 or okay. yeah so it's quite 19, young to be honest yeah 19 you know maybe 20 I'm not quite sure it's young to be wearing suits and yeah yeah and funny enough I did worry about the job as well I, I remember like on Sunday nights being quite worried about you know what I was going to do the next day and hitting sales targets and all that sort of stuff really and now I think oh god what were you thinking about you know life with the whole life in front of you I was getting bogged down with that sort of niff-naff and trivia really it was um it was extraordinary really mm. but um but anyway things got better and then I I gave that job up <laughs> kind of on a whim really like like uh, I've done a lot of things and um, I went to Africa with Simon who uh, he'd got a job flying for a German industrialist in the Gambia he'd got a private pilot's license and um, uh, I went with him I didn't have a li- I was only learning to fly at the time really I didn't have a full license and um, oh that's one thing I missed out was that when uh, when I was about 18 or 19 my grand died and the mm. house that we were living in, Seaford, got sold. Oh, and uh, okay. so we all got a little bit of money. Uh, and uh, I gave some of it to my mum to open up a shop, which wasn't really sharp investment. Oh. Uh, and, uh, what and kind of shop? It was a um, oh, kitchenware shop. She opened up with Thief in Seaford. And, um, you know, bless her, Thief was kind of like, did her best, I'm sure, to make it work. But my mum was, you know, anything like that that was involved, my mum was doomed to failure, really. Um, it was just, a you know, a vehicle whereby she could sort of whip around the corner to the pub and you know, and, and have a and not have a real job really, I think. But um, anyway, so I lent her some money, and I used the rest of the money to get a private pilot's license. So that's that's how that's a quite an important bit in the in the story. At this time, though, when Simon went to Gambia, I didn't have a private pilot's license. And we flew, we picked up this airplane from uh, Frankfurt, and we flew it down to Malaga, I think, and then across the coast, all the way around the uh, uh, west coast of Africa. Stopped off in Agadir, Morocco, and then somewhere in in the Spanish Sahara called. Liun, I think it was, and there was a lot of problems going on with the Polisario then, a lot of political unrest, mm-hmm. and they actually thought we they thought they'd lost us at one stage because we we appeared in the evening Argus, me and Simon, yeah, we you know they thought we'd gone lost. It's just that they, they hadn't recorded our landing at this place properly, and we were fine in actual fact. Oh wow! Yeah, and then we we carried on round to um, Mauritania, and then all the way down to Gambia, and I stayed there for about four maybe four months, uh, wow. and lived on a sort of compound full of Spanish engineers with Simon, and that was good fun. It was good fun um and then but obviously it wasn't going to last so then I came back came back to the UK I'm just trying to think how old I must have been I think I must have only still been about 20 really wow. and uh, and then 
Um, stop me if I'm boring you, but I, and then no, I didn't know any of this shit. Lad. I met um, I met <laughs> with my mate Tom, who you're actually going to meet in the summer, who's who's a really um, good old mate, and he kind of saved the day because he invited me up to work with him in a photographic studio in Baker Street, underneath an advertising agency called Footcone and Belding. They used to all the Cadbury's advertising at the wow. time to be a darkroom technician. Now I had no experience of being a darkroom technician, and I even less <laughs> even less aptitude. And but but Tom kind of bless him covered for me for for however long it was maybe it was a year or so, because we were having such good fun, and he was you know really actively pursuing a sort of career as a photographer which mm. he which he is now a successful photographer, and um, yeah so he that was that was a start of a of a great period really because we lived in a squat in Manor House with his sister who was training to be a doctor her boyfriend and a couple of Irish blokes called called Frank and Albert. <laughs> And uh, was this just, just crazy. Oh man, it was just such good fun. And because we, they were like, they were really, uh, they were quite, um, you know, it, it, the political discussions were interesting anyway. Because they were both quite, quite politically aware. Frank and Albert, uh, they were both from from Derry, and um, so we used to spend a lot of time in the pubs around uh, Finsbury Park and stuff. You know, the Irish music pubs and everything. Mm. And. Um, in this squat, I remember the one thing we always used to have um, purple sprouting broccoli for Sunday dinner because there was, that's, there was only purple sprouting broccoli in the back of the of this house in Finsbury Park. And, but you grew. Uh, yeah, that, that, I don't know. It's, somebody must have planted, you know, acres of this stuff because it was just thick purple sprouting broccoli. That so that's what that was always the vegetable for Sunday lunch. Aww. And uh, and it was a really nice time, you know. And so just used to get on get on the tube and go to um, Oxford Street every day in the dark and work in the dark. And then come back in the dark, get drunk, and do the same thing the next day. Wow. And it, so a lot of darkness. Yeah, a lot of darkness, and it was, but it was good fun. And it was in a photographic studio, and the two guys that owned it were were really good, good fun. And uh, and me and Tom had a lot of laughs, and um, yeah, and so that was good time. You know, that was a, the start of a good time because then I eventually I came back to Brighton mm. and started working at Browns, which was like kind of the beginning of all my mm. my sort of social life in, in Brighton. Now, really, what was it like living in a squat? Um, it was great then, really. I mean, it really was. <clears throat> was it unusual? It was. Um, I don't think it was that unusual then, and I, 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 I'm not even sure if we paid any. We probably paid a little bit of money just for sort of the gas bills and stuff. But it was a great position, you know. It was right by Manor House Tube, right opposite the park, you know. Um, and they're lovely people, you know, really, really nice. And I, I mean, that, that's sort of kind of illustrates, doesn't it? That it doesn't really matter so much where you live as for the people that you live with really in absolutely there. um and it was no it was it was tatty you know it was really tatty i mean my, i remember the carpet in my bedroom actually was the only thing that was holding most of the furniture up i think really so you kind of like <laughs> oh, no. walk quite gingerly and it was a good time yeah and i th i think oh, i think that must have lasted for about a year but i'm not i'm not entirely sure i'd have to ask tom really yeah, so that was good. And and then I lived in another squat later on, but that's a little bit further down the line. Yeah, and so then eventually, you know, I realised really that I'd taken up enough of Tom's time and, and I, I went to um, move down to Brighton. By that time, Simon's dad had lost all their, their money one way or another and they had a house in Florence Road, which, you know, by modern day standards would be considered as a big house, but it wasn't Absolutely. as big as the one they'd had before in Lewis. And they, you know, he, they, he put me up. And um, so I got a job at Brown's um and then that was you know that was uh behind the bar and that was just a huge laugh and really all the friendships i made because i didn't really know anybody in brighton to be honest then although i came from seaford and i used to go out in brighton yeah um i didn't really know anybody particularly that lived in brighton so um 
yeah, made it made a lot of friends. I met an Irish girl called Jilly, who you might have met, Jilly McCann. I'm not sure, lovely girl. Who, Heard lots about her. Yeah, she's she. Well, mum, mum knows her. Mum, uh, you know, uh, very well. Yeah, we had a, a, a relationship for, for probably about three years or something. Yeah, I, I thought you were together for quite a long time. Yeah, it was a, it was quite a long time. Used to go over to Bel. She came from Belfast. I used to go over to Belfast and, and see her. Um, Stay with her family, got to know all her cousins and stuff, and that was really nice. And then, then we, I think we split up, and then your mum sort of starts to come into the picture. And the yeah, the first first time I met your mum was um, I went to a, a dinner party that was being held by a chap called Big Matt. I don't know if you were well, you, you 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 remember Matt? Yeah, Big Matt. Every now and again, he turns up from for Christmas or whatever. And um, uh, and it was at Matt's dinner party, and I just remember telling a joke that had a, a, a it was a bit of a sexist joke, and um, mm-hmm. your mum gave me a really really hard time about it (laughs) (laughs) and uh after she'd gone i remember saying to matt who was that like as in don't invite me to any dinner parties with her again sort of thing you know and uh anyway so yeah yeah because she she really gave me a hard time and um what was the joke please tell me you remember i I couldn't if i told it now you wouldn't be able to broadcast it and it it wasn't a very funny joke anyway really so um yeah so then Karen and working at Brown, and then I, I used to see Kate, as in your mum, Kate, and we we sort of became friends and everything. And then really life sort of carried on, and I'm just thinking, you know, probably oh God, I must have spent a lot a long time working at Browns. Maybe I started when I was 22, 23. I must have spent at least five years there. Yeah, it was about I was about 28, thinking, what am I going to do with my life, really? And uh, at, at this time, I was working in a restaurant. Down so that's the, road. the first time you thought, what am I going to do in my life? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually, I I actually, you know, it was beginning, I had friends who were doing stuff like, you know, they had successful careers and, and, and kind mm. of, I had a great, a lot of fun, you know, a lot of really mm. good friends and always loads of money as well because we, we earned quite good money at Browns and um, uh, lots of parties and dinner parties and massive social life and all the rest of it. But I was thinking, what am I going to do, you know? And at that time, I was working with your mum in a restaurant called Richard's and so by this time we were friends obviously so what happened was i saw an advert in a a magazine called flight magazine which is like a recruitment magazine for all uk pilots and they Mm -hmm. wanted a there was an advert for a parachute pilot now i'd done some parachuting a few years before in the early 80s but when i was started working at browns it was like a little hobby sort of thing and I had a private pilot's license, so I rang up this parachute centre, and the chief instructor was a guy who was the chief instructor at the place I'd first started jumping at four or five years before. Oh, amazing! And so he went, "Oh, Stu, come on up, have a chat." You know, so I went up and saw this guy called Arthur Collingwood, who, uh, the chief instructor, and um, he was living in a, in a caravan on a little farm strip called Abbotsley in Cambridgeshire, mm-hmm. between St Neots and oh, Cambridge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, and he said, yeah, well, you've got the job, you know. So that so that was that was an um, that was the turning point for me. Actually, uh, I think I sold everything I had, which wasn't much anyway. Went up and lived in a caravan, and I met a guy called Dave Harrison, who was became like a you know really really instrumental in in, in the way my life went on from then on. I didn't I didn't really like him at first, and um, I think he was a bit sort of you know. Um, not all that impressed with me anyway, but we, we kind of like we, we worked around each other and he paid for me to do a twin rating on the aeroplane that they were flying then. And I started what's a, parachute what's flying. What's a twin rating? Uh, two engines to fly okay. an aeroplane with two engines, yeah. So I had a thing called an Islander, which took about 12 people, I think, 12 parachutists. And then so I started flying this, this uh, aeroplane uh, from this 430 metre strip at this place where 
everybody really it was like uh, the weekends everybody came up there about 300 people and all they wanted to do was jump out of airplanes and have fun wow. so it was like really it was party central this place and um dave harrison bought a not long after i'd been there he bought a big twin engine turboprop airplane that took 20 people it was a big move in those days it was the first really the first parachute center in the country that had an aircraft of that size. So it's a big investment. Yeah, so I was suddenly I was flying this thing, which for me was like the space shuttle, really. And I remember like I did a few circuits on in this thing, and Dave Harrison just he said, "Oh, look, we just you know you, you'll be fine. They're just off you go." So I just Jesus. really just got this thing and kind of. Uh, but he was a bit like that, Dave. But he he didn't he you know he, he moved at quite a fast pace. And um, and yeah, and so then I was flying this this fantastic airplane. We used to go down to Spain. Um, you know, to uh, to parachuting boogies down in Spain at Emporia Brava, and we'd take all the people down in the back, all the jumpers, and then we'd like fly down to Spain, and we'd spend a couple of weeks there, and I'd just parachute flying. So it was just fun, lots and lots of fun. And uh, on my 30th birthday, I remember like I was just flying, I'd done about 20 lifts, it was a really busy day, and I was quite tired. Nobody knew it was my birthday. And then uh, uh, I just remember thinking, God, this is fantastic. I'm, I had enough hours to do a commercial license and um, I'd arranged to go and do the course. I borrowed the money from the bank and I thought, this is it. I could be a commercial pilot, you know. So it was a great mm. day that really, just to remember going round and round and round. Because they found out it was my birthday at the end of the day and I got completely smashed. <laughs> and the next day Aww. I actually remember them calling, calling for a pilot for the Twin Otter and I was actually in a ditch. And um, uh, oh and I, 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 I uh, went and had a shower and got out of the ditch and then did another day's flying. But it was great. It was brilliant. So so then, yeah, then they lost planning permission at the parachute centre. No. Uh, and that coincided really with the time that I had um, uh, I had enough hours to go and do, uh, and I'd booked to go and do the written part of the exam in London. And that's the second time I squared it, stayed in a squat. And that was with Steve Cooper. Aww. Yeah, because he, he had a squat in um, Leightonston with some, some really nice people. And he said, well, you can come and stay, you know, stay in the squat. So I, I stayed in the second the squat. squat, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Steve put me up and I did my exams. And then um, I went down to Southampton and did the, the flying bit. I don't want to go on too long because it's a bit boring for anybody that's not interested in flying. Did the flying <laughs> bit. And then I kind of ran out of money just when I was about three quarters of the way through mm. my my license. And I'd, I borrowed 20,000 quid, which was a lot of money in those days. And, and I still hadn't finished. And I had probably, I probably needed about another five or 6,000 quid. And I didn't know where I was going to get it from. So I kind of went, came back to Brighton and went underground a bit. And Dave Harrison, bless him, actually got hold of me. He rang me up. I don't know how he got hold of my number. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've, I've kind of run out of money, Dave. And he, said, and he said, I told you if you had any problems to give me a ring. And... Um, so I've arranged for you to borrow £8,000 from a Lloyds Bank in Kemptown, which was that he'd just bought a little freight operation in South End, and this was their, their bank, funnily enough, was in Kemptown. They said, I've arranged for you to borrow £8,000, uh, no security needed. Um, go, and, um, wow. yeah, go and borrow the money, finish your licence off, and I'll pay you £1,000 a month until you uh, start flying, which was then was a lot of money. So he kind of saved my life, really, Dave. Wow. Um, yeah. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, it was like, you know those times in your life when you things don't go right and you think, you know, you you can you can spend a few days crying about it and feeling really sorry for yourself, and but then actually, generally nobody comes and saves you. You have to save yourself. You know, you mm. have to think, right, I've got to, I've got to make this work really well. On this occasion, somebody did come and save me, and it was and it was Dave. You know, uh, so I'm a big, a big debt of gratitude really, and um, 
Yeah, and then so I finished the exam, the exams, and all the flying stuff, practical, and he gave me a job straight away. And then I started flying freight in the same airplane yeah. that I'd been flying, parachute flying in, in Abbotsley. And, and and when the rest is kind of history, really. So then <laughs> I wanted to go back to Brighton, obviously, because that's where my heart was. And so at the weekends, I was flying from South End. I used to go back to Brighton and um, so I bumped into your mum and she uh, offered me a room in Power Square and um, yeah and then one thing one cold winter's night I got promoted oh stop there and, um, stop there please yeah and that was it and uh, and then we, yeah. we were together and then so well yeah but as you know it's quite a long time we, we were together before we actually um, decided to have kids mm. so how long was that gap between first meeting my mum and then actually god I'm just thinking well, you know, probably eight or nine years. Wow. Yeah. That's such a long time. Yeah, but we'd become friends in between sort of thing, you know, because obviously we saw bumped into mm. each other around Brighton and stuff like that. And, you and did know. you never think that it would become um, a relationship? Well, I don't know, really. I mean, we, we, yeah, it was kind of more on a friendly basis, I guess. But then it kind of, so it's, it's kind of started off like that, but then went, went upwards kind of from there, really. Mm. Yeah. Interesting, interesting start. So we'd known each other. We had known each other quite well for quite yeah. a long time before we, um, before we finally got together. So, but when you say your heart was in Brighton, was that? Well, just because that's yeah. I mean, that's where all my, f you know, Browns type friends were, and that's what I felt mm. was home really. I asked Mum this as well, but what was Brighton like back then? You know, like compared to now. Um, I think it was it, it was pretty much the same in spirit. I think really it was it was smaller though. It really was smaller, and I, I think there's no doubt about it. It has gone from being a town, you know, to being uh, to being a city really. Um, and there was, you know, I think I think it was smaller really, like because there was less there were less centres of that kind of party activity mm. really, if you like. There were less restaurants, there were less clubs, um, and. So I think if you, for instance, if you met somebody on holiday that came from Brighton, if they were of the same sort of age group, you generally could find somebody who you who you knew, like mm. a mutual friend. Really, I'm not sure if that would be so easy nowadays. Mm. Um, you know, obviously it still it's a works. Small town still, yeah, in that sense. And there's only five or six schools and state yeah. schools, and so yeah, all that stuff still kind of comes into play. Yeah, I'd say it's still the same in spirit. Really, it's still a nice mm. place to live. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, we're kind of, I mean, it's, if you were together for a long time before having kids, and it seems like a lot of stuff to jump over, were you just not thinking about, because you, you, you and mum are nine years apart in age, aren't you? Yeah. Nine? Yeah. Uh, it was, it's eight, really, yeah. Eight, eight. okay. Yeah, 66, Fair and enough. I was born in 58, so yeah. Eight. But either way, you were getting maybe even slightly past the age of having kids well yeah i mean i was it's, it's true actually i mean i was 38 so you know mum was 30 so we were both you know kind of uh, definitely at the time when we should have been thinking about it mm. i i don't really you know we were we were very much together then you know you know kids or no kids and um but i i, I think i don't know maybe i thought we'd sort of implicitly agreed that we wouldn't have kids or something i don't anyway i, I probably would have let it slide but thank Heavens, your mum had different ideas, really, <laughs> and um, yeah, so that that was great. But were you not were you not in like tempted at all to have kids? No, I don't know. And you might be, you know, you might be, you, you know, you might have your finger on a button. I don't know whether that's whether that's a result of of my 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 childhood or, or younger life or whatever. I don't know really. And but but then it didn't certainly didn't affect my sister, mm. my sisters. 
you know they they sure. were both only in the sense that i think they're both they're incredibly committed to their kids i think we all probably have that and i'm not i know everybody is incredibly committed to their kids so i think possibly we're even a tiny bit more all three of us a tiny bit more vulnerable even to that uh, and i'm not saying that you know that makes me a particularly brilliant dad or anything like that but uh, but but um yeah i yeah i don't know and i can't really remember why but life was good and uh, i mean yeah you're right I, at, at 38 i kind of should have been thinking mm. now's the time to have kids really it's just it's it's such a it's such a given and i i'm not at all of the opinion that deciding either way is better than the other, but it's definitely something that yeah, everyone at least has to make that decision, whether you go through with having the kids or not. Yeah. It's still, it's a big decision either way, I think, these days. Well, I don't think, I mean, mum might say that, 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 that I struggled against it, but I really don't think I did. I'm not even sure if we talked about it that much. I really think, you know, as in a lot of things, your mum was in the driving seat and I don't think she was particularly <laughs> interested until that point i think probably that's what it is really i think you know that there was that age difference and mm. then your mum got to 30 and she thought well that, I, i'm gonna have kids you know and mm. and so that that was it really and all i can say is that when it happened i was um we decided uh, after having spent years not not really practicing any any kind of birth control at all it happened either the first or second time that we we tried to do it because i went away on a contract to Sardinia for for quite a long time after you know we we decided to have kids mm. and 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 then the so next no thing she rang up and said um, I'm pregnant. I just remember being a being a lovely thing. I remember sitting on a balcony of the hotel we were staying in, thinking, well, this is really like times are changing. So I didn't resist it. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not like uh, it was always wonderful, really. That and even the prospect of it was wonderful. And um, you know, uh, and when you came, it was wonderful, and compounded obviously by Ed in a slightly more <laughs> interesting way because uh, <laughs> he was a boy. I realised quite quickly, and um, <laughs> and I thought that was going to be that was going to be difficult, but in fact, it's been a real blessing. And um, it's well, it, it's always a blessing, isn't it? Really, but mm. it's been a fantastic, fantastic adventure, you know, with us all together. And God, I shudder at the thought of not having. You know, if you, your mum not having taken it all in hand and got, mm. it, so got it all sorted. For the for the namesake of the podcast, as we've got to the point where you initially said is the first time you felt responsible, was that a, a gradual feeling or did it kind of hit you all at once? Instantaneous. When I was yeah. born? Instantaneous. As soon as you popped out, I just thought this is, it changed my life in within a second. Absolutely. And was that quite yeah, no doubt about it. conscious or innate? It was just a really lovely Instinct. feeling. And I think it's, you know, and, and I still say, you know, to people, to younger, you know, friends or acquaintances that think about having kids, that um, it's not like, you know, you, you that people say you fall in love with your kids and you think, obviously, quite naturally, if you've not had kids before, you think about falling in love with your friends or your relatives. And it's not like that. You actually fall in love with your kids. It's, it's a, it, you know, you fall in love with your kids. They become you know, the object of your, uh, of yeah. your everything really. And, and it happens, you know, I mean, I look at, look, I'm not saying, you know, I always said to people, if you, if you're having kids, don't worry. If you feel like you want to throw them out of the window, don't worry. Just don't actually throw them out of the window. And people look <laughs> at you quite shocked. And then about six months later, you see them, they go, Oh, I know, I know what you mean. You know, cause it is really hard work. And, and um, it, you know, and obviously I was away a lot. So, so mum was doing a yeah. lot of it on her own. Um, but it, it does push, push you to the limits. So, but, but I think that the actual, it, the, the essence of it, it was, was instantaneous for me, really. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with Ed, you know, absolutely. Um, same and different because he was a boy? It was, you know, because we knew a bit more what to expect. 
but then there was that little extra twist with Ed because he was a boy, you know, so that was kind of like, but in a good way. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I wouldn't have any other way now, really. Mm. Yeah, so responsibility, it was, and you know what, we've been lucky, really, because I've always had a, you know, we've always had money coming in. Um, and, you know, we never really had to worry about money like some of our friends have. We've never both had to work, really, but we've always appreciated the luck of the art to, to be in that situation. So it's not been, you know, things were a bit tight, I think, for quite a few years, really. But we, we've we've actually we've had it pretty pretty soft really, mm. um, you know, with the proviso that obviously I've been away and Mum's done a lot of it on her own and that's been quite unusual. But it's been all yeah, it's been all fun really. I think mm. yeah, the whole thing's been good. I remember you used to, because I used to get upset when you left, and obviously this was back when we had video stores still. Yeah. Where you could go and pick a pick a film and rent it out. <laughs> and you used to say, I've got to go so you can go and get videos on the weekend. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> See ya, bye. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, was that, all I needed. Yeah, Power Square, they were good, they were good times really. And I, I mean, I still don't know how we managed to bring, you know, to survive in that flat with it. It was so cold, wasn't it? And those windows, none of them worked. I just don't remember. Fires. You must have done a good job running downstairs and putting the cooker yeah. on. Yeah. But all that, you know, the big bed and everything and lying in bed on Saturdays and everything, I mean, just did the best times, mm. really. So, obviously, you've very recently retired. Not to identify you as a retired person. As a retiree. A retiree. What's your feeling and plan for, you know, this stage of adulthood? Well, I think... I think uh, if things work out um, financially, and I'll know that in a, a month or two, then I, I would, I think I'd probably prefer not to go back to flying. If they didn't work out, then I might have to think about possibly going back to flying. Well, that would be quite hard, really, at my age, you know, because I, I you know, it's, it doesn't get any easier to, um, you know, to learn stuff, and it would be quite difficult getting back in the uh, in the frame. But uh, there is a shortage of pilots, so it would always be a possibility. But I'd like to do. I'd, what I'd like to do is to do um, to use the time. I, I can't see myself ever just carrying on doing you know, like what I've been doing for a year or so, although it's been lovely. Yeah. Um, doing like, doing nothing and just, you know, being smug and happy and, you know, not, not having too many worry pro uh, money problems. And, you know, I can't, I can't really see myself doing that. So I want to do stuff and I'd like to do stuff that, that, was, that was important, you know, and kind of maybe selfishly kind of, you know, was able to kind of let me to discover stuff about myself that, that I'm, me I'm good at, you know. Mm. And I've always, I felt I've always been a bit of an average Joe, really. Um, I and, disagree, uh, Dad. Well, that's, that, that. I swear to God, that's not even without a pick of, of, of modesty, really. I, I, you know, I think we all get to a certain age in life and we start to rip ourselves to, 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 to bits a bit, you know, about, you know, what have you done with your life? And, and I see my, my achievements as being, really really quite um quite modest really but but I, yeah i'd like to do some stuff that actually where i could think you know i, I was good at that as well actually and and so mm. i don't know what it's going to be um but it'll be something hopefully of worth i'm sure it will you be. know we probably need to earn a few quid as well actually between now and yeah maybe 65 i'm glad i did it though i'm glad i stopped you know it, it really so far because I, I was just away so much and um it's just in so many ways it's been good you know i think it's been good to to be at home for mum I know she might she might crack a wry <laughs> smile, but but I think it has been good and it's been good to be here for Ed and it's just been nice to be at home really and not be away all the time really. And I just felt like I was I could stagger on to sixty five, and then another five years you're seventy mm. and it all becomes a bit of a bonus really. It all becomes a bit tenuous now and I think you know I'd like to think that I'm going to live to be sort of ninety, but we don't really know. 
and uh, I'd like to do stuff now while I'm still fit and healthy and young. So yeah. I'm pleased about having done it, you know, but a little bit um, nervous about the transition and, and making the best use of the time. But it's we're lucky, Christ, we're lucky, aren't we? You know, we we live in a nice town, we've got a house, we don't have to worry too much about money and, you know, yeah. everything's good really, isn't it? Christ, we're all healthy. What else do you Ain't want? Ain't life grand. Ain't life grand, it really is. So, quick fire round. Um, what's a song that reminds you of the stuff that we've been talking about? Well, I kind of, I've, I've had a bit of an advantage because uh, I, I've listened to your mum's podcast, although she hasn't <laughs> let me listen to any others, as it wasn't fair. And she, uh, <laughs> I think I, I'm going to go for um, A Lovely Day by, by Bill Withers, actually, really, because it reminds me of the time, uh, particularly the time after I left school. It's quite an optimistic, sort of um, uplifting sort of song, and I think that's kind of, the way that I work mostly, and also because I, I like to think that that's probably sums up how your mum feels when she looks at me every day. <laughs> you wish. Yeah, possibly. When's the luckiest that you felt in life? The luckiest. Um, I feel lucky all the time. I really do. You know. Yeah, I I just um, I don't know. There's a constant loop going on in my head of of, of things that are reasons to be cheerful, really. I, and I, mm. it's probably a bit of a it's probably not entirely healthy. I don't know. We'll see. No. If this, um, Certainly yeah, better than reasons to be uncheerful. Yeah, I can't. It is it's difficult, and it's it's difficult with this this counselling thing that I'm just you know messing about with really. That is actually it's quite difficult because I'm just so like that really, and that's mm. kind of in that arena. It's even something of an impediment, I suppose. Really, look, I mean, you know, I do. Obviously, I get down if we, but 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 just really for for sort of really fundamental, simple things like not having enough money, or if you know if if any of you were to become ill, you know, then then you know that it would we would be in a different Mm. different place really but but as things are now i just think you know every day i'm just always lucky really always lucky yeah um what's some advice that you would give to yourself at 21 though it sounds like you didn't need it Um, (laughs) that also applies to me at 21 well i yeah i think i would probably say although i you know might have given the impression that that it was all i think i probably was a bit of always have been a little bit of a worrier in a funny kind of way which is kind of like a bit of a a a contrast isn't it to to, to being lucky all the time but i i always have been a bit of a worrier and i suppose i probably i think i must have been worrying at times and and so i would just say don't worry so much really yeah don't worry because generally it'll all be all right well, obviously, as things turned out, it did turn out all right, didn't yeah. it, so far? <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight's a gift, Dad. Exactly, yeah. But outside of that, I would say, yeah. You know, it's it's um, yeah, life's good. And uh, I think, especially, yeah, I would say that to somebody of a similar age now, I would say you seem to be put under an awful lot of pressures that like, aren't, don't seem to be entirely necessary. And mm. I'd say just take it easy on yourself a bit. Sure. And to end on a positive note, what's a positive change in the world that I live in that myself and my peers can make the most of? Uh, I would say communication without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the one, the one really bright spot is that, that, that it, it's, it's very difficult for bad, bad people to hide nowadays, isn't it really? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you're that you can use that communication to, to, to do the right thing with one, with one kind of mind, really. I think that, I think that's a great thing really, actually. Um, you know, I know that there's downsides to to um, the technology, social media, and all that. But in general, that communication is great, and that, that I, I think that makes me feel optimistic about the future. Really, for you mm. guys, that you you'll sort it out. There's a lot of stuff to sort out. Um, Can say that again. 
you know, that we didn't. It's a big to-do list. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we had, you know, the ozone layer, I think, I can't remember when that was, but, you know, global warming, all that sort of stuff. It's a heavy old list of things. But but I th I think, you know, I feel, com I, I feel you know, quietly confident anyway that they'll, they'll sort it all out, really. Nice. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dad. My pleasure. Sorry for rambling on. No, you didn't. Much. See you later. See you later. <laughs>